0: Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists, and industry experts, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. Today's guest is Ben Clark, Portfolio Manager at TMS Capital. Ben has over 20 years of industry experience, the majority of them with TMS Capital, a boutique private wealth advisory firm. Ben has been a regular guest on Livewire's Buy Hold Sell series, where he won the Don Bradman Award for the most consistent stock picker. On multiple occasions, he's also been among the best performers in the fundies picks from our annual Outlook series. Finally, bringing home the top prize in 2020 with his call on Amazon, which rallied over 76% during the year. In this episode, we learn about his approach to investing in quality growth stocks. He shares his views on the Afterpay merger with Square. Plus, we discuss several Aussie stocks that he thinks have outstanding opportunities for growth. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, Hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever i post content not a livewire subscriber yet just head on over to livewiremarkets.com it's free easy to register and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country well that's it for now i hope you enjoy the show Hi Ben, welcome to the show. Good to be finally chatting with you.
1: Thanks, Patrick. I've listened to a number of your of your episodes doing a Saturday walk, so it's nice to be on.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's been a long time coming. I think you're actually one of the first contributors that I met when I started at Livewire up in Sydney, oh, f- six years ago or so, five or six years ago. But yeah, so I, I felt we were a bit overdue. I thought coming up to the end of the year to be nice to get somebody who'd been a uh, a long-time supporter on the show.
1: Yep, no, it's it's been great watching the growth of Livewire. You know, it's, it's it was a a much smaller vehicle that back then, and you guys have done really well to grow it so fast. It's you know turning into a real beast in the market.
0: Yeah, over the the years, we've grown by so many multiples that I can't even remember what the exact number is now <laughs> since <laughs> I since I joined. But it's yeah, it's it's been really exciting to be uh, to be part of uh, of a company like this. Uh, what kind of caught your eye ad- about Livewire, though? As you said, it was a it was a very small company. We didn't have a massive audience when you when you first joined. So there must have been something you saw that caught your attention.
1: Yeah, there, I, look. It, to be honest, initially it was Jimmy Marley who um, I actually went to school with, and um, he was the year below me at school. And I've been on a couple of surfing trips with him, and you know he came and saw me just as he and Tom were were starting up, and you know, I sort of gave him some, some feedback on, on what I thought. But, you know, Jimmy did a great job. He was at BRR before Livewire and you know did a great job growing that business. And, you know, I just sort of thought they had a really good chance of striking a chord. And, you know, I guess, you know, when he asked me, you know, Ben, could you put some content up or could we have a chat to you or do anything like that? You know, I was more than happy to. Um, I, I like the idea of, you know, the kind of the d- democratization of the of, of, of what's going on in the market. And, you know, I, Twitter, I know, is a great source of information, but it's pretty toxic as well. And, you know, the, the, the thing I do like about Livewire is it just seems like a really healthy sort of sounding board for people to give ideas, to get feedback, to challenge the way that you're thinking. Um, and, you know, as I've seen the journey Livewire has taken on, it's probably, you know, I think the biggest selling all you guys have got is just the not that I'm saying myself here but the, the quality of the people and the contributors that you've got on you know you can get some pretty high quality content in a short period of time
0: yeah it's pretty amazing some of the people who who contribute to the site now there's been we've, we've had a few pretty high profile ones over the last few years we had Kathy Wood was on the the platform. Before she got famous, (laughs) I like to think. And then, you know, more recently we've had Jeremy Grantham, and it's, and then I mean, really, pretty much everybody in the Australian funds management industry almost now is, (laughs) is on there. I'd be curious to know who's your favourite contributor or author. Of course, that doesn't mean you don't like anybody else. This is this is not a slight on anybody. But is there anyone that stands out for you?
1: Look, what one one. Person I do follow pretty closely is Rudy Philippek Van Dyke. And I I used to do a fair bit of stuff previously with him. So I know him well. And I've just always found him, you know, he's he's probably a bit left of center in the market, but um, he's got a really good sense of what drives markets um, and how markets behave and what they look for and, you know, sort of looking at what's going on within the market. And I think um, you know if you listen to some of the posts he does or read some of the things, it's you know it's it, there's common sense stuff in there, but it, it really gives you a good feel. I think for um, you know why share prices move, why they sell off, you know on, on what can seem like good news or, or potentially bad news, and um, so he, I, I think he's been a um, he's been a good proponent. Um, Emma Fisher at Early, um I, I follow. Um, you know, we're probably going to talk about this later. You know, I'm I'm a very enthusiastic growth investor, but I've often found that when, you know, not that um, I would say Ellie would want to be called a hard value manager, um, but when value and growth kind of aligns, like when a value manager or more traditional value manager comes to potentially a growth stock, there's often something to look at there. So, Always interesting listening to her content, and you know some of the the Hyperion guys as well. We follow really closely. Mark Arnold, I know, has been putting up some content more recently uh, since they listed their global fund, and you know I think he's been a an invaluable source of information to me. And you know again, I think you know everyone brings different qualities and different ways of thinking onto the platform. And you know, Mark, I think you know when we when we meet up with the Hyperion guys. You know, it's just this um, very long-term, unemotional way of looking at the businesses that they own and where they're headed. And you just try and and let a little bit of all these attributes rub off on you and, and keep listening and keep taking it in. And, you know, hopefully it makes you a better investor.
0: I like to think so. If I, if if any of of uh, the quality of the guests that I speak to uh, rubs off on me, then it must make me a great investor. <laughs> 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 to comment on them, not me, by the way. <laughs>
1: yeah, surround yourself with good people.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, Emma Fisher was a lot of fun to speak to. We had her on the show earlier this year, and it was a really, really interesting episode. We're both fans of F one, so it made the uh, gave gave us some common ground to work from there. <laughs> Yeah. Um, before we get into the the discussion, I know we want we're going to speak a lot about stocks today. I just kind of wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a bit about where where your uh, strategy fits in with TMS Capital. Uh, we're going to be talking about obviously a fairly small part of your business. I just thought oh, you might want to tell us a little bit about what the other things that you do are as well, uh, so as not to give you know a, a skewed representation of what you guys are about. Yeah,
1: that's great. Thanks, Patrick. Um, yeah, so, I mean, TMS was started sort of back in 05, and I've I've pretty much been there since since day dot. And our, our core sort of um, offering to to clients is that we manage money on a non-discretionary basis on their behalf. So it's really, you know, a client might come to us, and they've got a pool of funds, and they're, every, every client's got different goals and objectives that, that they're trying to realise in, in, in approaching a business like ours and we will, you know, sort of manage that money on their behalf. Now, you know, that will be in things like debt, infrastructure, property. You know, I, 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 we're very active in hybrid markets, as an example. And then, of course, in, in Australian and international shares. And, you know, we, we employ, I guess, particularly locally, a, a, a sort of a barbell approach in terms of managing money where we have a, you know, a collection of what we think are fast-growing, long-term, you know, businesses that could do very well from a growth point of view. And, and that might be offset by, um, you know, things um, like infrastructure stocks, like, you know, businesses like Solpats or Wesfarmers, um, which have been long-term holdings for us where, you know, there's a nice income stream and, and there is growth, but it's not going to be maybe at the hyper levels that some of the other businesses are experiencing. and And, you know, that's sort of done on a Client by client basis in terms of allocation. So, that the fund that I've been um, running for six years now, um, the High Conviction Fund, we sort of termed it, is really more on the growth side of that of that barbell, and it's it's been put together to try and look at what we think are some of the best quality growth stocks that we can find in our market. It doesn't mean that they've got to be the fastest growing businesses. You know, I, I put much more. Emphasis on the quality of the growth rather than the speed of the growth, but you know the, certainly what we'll be talking about today is more focused on on that side of our our company.
0: What do you mean by the quality of the growth? What is good quality growth to you, as opposed to you know poor quality growth? I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I think it, it, I think probably the recurring nature of it would be the the main theme that I would say. So, you know, if you look at, I mean, if you if you look at a business like um, WiseTech, its customer attrition rate is less than 1% per annum. So when, when you look at the, um, the revenues that WiseTech earned last year, you know, more than 99% of that will almost certainly occur again next year. If you look at an offshore business that's similar to that, I would say Salesforce has got one of the highest quality growing businesses that I've come across. And, and of course, you've got other companies which can experience strong periods of growth, but they're not necessarily recurring in nature. And, you know, we've got stocks actually in this portfolio, which, which you know, I would single out like Appen would be an example of a, a business in recent times that has experienced a pretty decent hiccup as a result of, of what you would probably call the quality of the growth. But I, I think actually the Australian share market is littered with businesses that can go through periods where they are growing strongly, but it's how long they can continue to grow at those rates is what I would earmark as the quality of the growth.
0: Yeah, we've certainly seen over the last few years a few great examples of, of companies that have gotten the market very, very excited for a period of time only to severely disappoint them later. I think the the, the one that always sticks in my memory is uh, is Blackmore's. I remember at one point uh, Blackmores was being discussed in the same, you know, in the same light as CSL, which <laughs> which seems <laughs> silly side. now, but five <laughs> years ago everybody thought that that was a reasonable, uh, you know. Comp- I remember they were both racing for a hundred dollars a share at around the same time. Obviously, one of those companies has done a lot better since then. Um, Do you consider yourself, though, to be a pure growth investor or more uh, price-sensitive, you know, kind of growth at a reasonable price type approach?
1: Um, Look, I I, I think both approaches, I think, are completely prudent. I I just think it comes down to what the level of growth you're expecting is and what the quality of the growth is. So um, growth at a reasonable price to me is – you know, everything has its price, right? So so some businesses are growing really fast, but you look at it and sort of say, oh, is that really sustainable? And therefore you have to apply a a multiple to those earnings that you believe reflects the uncertainty of that. Other companies, you know, are are growing year on year out and and the growth is highly sustainable and a different multiple needs to be applied. So I, I think it really comes down to a company by company view, Patrick. I mean, if I look at, you know some of the businesses outside of this portfolio, and I know we're trying to stick to it. Um, you know that we've been invested in for well over a decade. You know they have been some of the greatest compounders of of capital that you that you've seen. I mean, Sol Pats um, and Wes Farmers, as examples, uh, you know, have been extraordinary businesses. ARB Corporation, um, Reese Plumbing, uh, the, the, these businesses might not look as exciting on the outside um, but they have delivered over many years and you've you've got to weigh up what you pay for the quality of that company's earnings and you know so I, I I tend to think when you say growth at a reasonable price it's based on what that growth looks like
0: do you have a single way of valuing or pricing growth stocks or have you got to take more of a, a bespoke approach for each one
1: I, I think you do um, I I I think you can't apply one formula across different industries or even different businesses within an industry because I really think you've got to do your work on that specific business and then you've got to think about what you'd be willing to pay for that. Um, I mean, in terms of an approach that we take, one thing I think that has served us well because you know, we're, we're having a conversation now about something which has been this raging debate in the Australian share market for a number of years now, which is, um, you know, we've seen, you know, the hyper um, share price growth of, of a number of these businesses. And there's been, you know, sort of plenty um, of argument about, are you mad to play the, pay the multiples that these companies have traded on through their journeys? Um, that, you know, we're seeing PEs that we've never seen before, you um, It's been a divisive issue, and there's been a lot of debate around it. And it's actually one of the reasons I think a lot of these stocks have done so well is that if it was obvious to everyone much earlier earlier in the journey where they were going to get to, they wouldn't have been so mispriced in their early stages. Um, But you know, I I so you know if I follow on from that, I think looking at global comparables has been something which has been a um, a good technique for us, just because I think a lot of you know the the companies that we're sort of discussing and, and I think most of the, the listeners won't be familiar with them and could reel off five or six names you, you just haven't seen companies like this on the Australian Stock Exchange before and there's no one really to line them up against and say what should I be paying and if if you look to places like America and the NASDAq and much much deeper capital pools with much more experienced investors who have seen, um, these businesses for longer periods of time in much greater quantity, and have probably got a lot more experience um, in terms of, you know, sort of saying what they with their own money what they think these companies ultimately are worth. Um, that has been something that we have tried to employ, where where we've um, looked offshore, looked at you know what we think is a business that's similar, and, and you know just to rattle off an example here would be, um, you know, WiseTech. Uh, and and Salesforce, you know, even though they're in very different industries and and got different, there are similar characteristics, uh, extremely high recurring levels of income. But I think the most important thing is they've effectively come into these huge addressable markets where they are really the only player, you know, that there isn't, WiseTech doesn't have a competitor, WiseTech's competitor is a logistics or freight forwarding company running their own um, platform internally, which they use to monitor the movement of all of their parcels. And when you think about Salesforce, the exact same thing was this was the case over the last decade or two. You know, you might have had ANZ, might have been running its own CRM internally um, and had a whole team of IT professionals working on that and, you know, constantly having to try and update it and keep it as relevant as it can for its employees. How do you value... Um, you know, a, a, a business that was willing to lose a significant amount of money in its early journey to show to A and Z that it could take on that ownership of the platform, do it in a far superior manner um, and probably do it cheaper. And, and that's effectively what WiseTech's done. So if you look at Salesforce, you know, 15, 10, 15 years ago in the U.S., there was almost an identical debate about what you pay for a business, as we've seen with some of these other ones here. Um, and, you know, it's it's probably because the, the gyrations that we've seen have been significant in a number of the, the names that we might talk about. But it's probably given us the conviction that, you know, this, this is a way that um, others have invested, as I said, in um, probably more mature markets. And it gives us a bit of a bench post as to how we
0: should what are you finding generally as, uh, you know, kind of making those comparisons between Australian stocks and the US stocks? Are you seeing any kind of persistent themes of one market or the other being more expensive or cheaper or favouring particular markets? Or is, is there actually a fairly, you know, efficient uh, kind of, you know, pricing across the two markets these days?
1: I think it's getting more efficient um you know i i I think it's still when you see the share price behavior of some of the more I'll call them the you know the faster growing businesses that you know when you look at the short-term financials it, it, there's there's more room for volatility because they're a lot more extreme and um, I, I think we saw that with a lot of businesses in this area in the US probably a decade ago and they've they've probably sort of as time has gone on, they've moved on from that. I mean, if you look at a company like Atlassian as an example in the States, technically it's still loss making um, and, you know, it, it is, um, hit, I think it hit an all time high again last night. And is fast becoming one of the biggest businesses in the world, and you certainly haven't seen the volatility in the team share price over there that we tend to see in some of the stocks that we have over here. Um, so I, I think there is an element where Australian investors, probably more at an institutional level, have been more reluctant um, to embrace some of these companies earlier in their journey, and that's in turn probably I think you know from what I sort of hear from when you speak to some of the guys. Um, you know, the asset consultants are, 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 can be nervous about it as well because, um, you know, they they look at some of the larger holdings potentially and they're sort of like, wow, you know, everyone says that's way overpriced. That seems like a big risk to the portfolio. So, it, it, you know, I think there's, there's layers of reasons why we're still probably a bit behind some of these more mature markets, but I, I definitely think we're catching up. And you know, I think Afterpay, you know, just as a, a more recent example, was a good example, you know, where there a firm which was listed in the US, you know, behind Afterpay, but fairly similar business. And what really struck me about, you know, the Afterpay journey was that there was really I think Eli Griffiths were the only um Australian shareholder that was substantial at some stage along along the path, which is really unusual. When you think it nearly made the it did make the ASX 20. And, and there wasn't one Australian farm manager that was substantial, but there they they were venture capital funds, U.S. Um, you know, sort of hedge funds and U.S. mutual funds that were significant holders on the register. So maybe that's just a bit of an indication that we are still sort of in the, um, um, was earlier on in the journey of, of, of looking at these businesses
0: yes there was an incredible amount of skepticism about uh about afterpay all along the journey I, I have to admit i'm guilty of some of it myself but uh but we've seen many examples over the last particularly the last 10 years or maybe that's just because when i've been paying the most attention uh of those kind of those stocks that just look expensive everybody complains about them being expensive and they just keep going up i mm. I, I guess Best examples probably Amazon at the end of the day.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, and Amazon's probably an example of looking back and saying the market got it absolutely right because, you know, when you look at it today, the multiple does not appear demanding by any means versus what we're paying, you know, for our sort of strong growing businesses. I think last time I looked at Amazon's trading on an EV to EBITDA of about 22 times. Um you know, given the um, given the incredible growth runway that they still have, and you know, I, I think got to be one of the best businesses that you can own in the world. Um, you know, doesn't seem to me to be, uh, you know, uh, overpriced by any means. And I, I think it was in, you know, you can correct me if if you know the answer, but I, I think it was in 2017 when they recorded, you know, technically recorded their first quarterly um, profit. Uh, you know, not that long ago, and um, and and the, the the share price, of course, had run extremely hard for years leading into that quarter. Um, and you know, I think in some ways, you know, what we're seeing with Tesla um, in the US is is a similar sort of example where it still looks very expensive, but each quarter that they keep reporting, it's looking not quite as expensive as the quarter prior, despite the sh- what the share price has done. So, yeah, I you know, ho- hopefully it's a good example. And, it, it, you know, I think for listeners out there, it's just don't immediately discount businesses because they appear on the outside to be too expensive. Um, from my experience, sh- share prices generally are going up for a reason, um, you know, that the, the market is normally, you know, is, is normally um, more right than wrong. It, not to say it's always right, but you know what we what we have seen with um, a number of these companies ultimately is the weight of money could see the future, and you know there's littered examples along the sidelines of ones that didn't make it that that the market thought were on the same path. But yeah, I think you you've really got to do your work and you've got to try and build your own conviction as to what you believe you should be paying. And you know, I know I'm going a bit off the topic here, but growth businesses that that the market has an extraordinary ability, particularly with growth businesses, to test your conviction of how strongly you believe in that company, and to find your pain points and to squeeze them, <laughs> and um, and to really make sure that you want to own that stock. And the what you know, I think what you find is that the faster the growth, the more frequent and the more severe the corrections you get in that share price along the journey, and. You've really got to. Um, you've got to. It keeps testing your metal, and it it it's what makes growth investing fascinating to me. But it, it's also what creates a bit more of a stressful environment.
0: Shaking out the paper hands, as our uh, as our friends on Reddit say these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's get into t- talking about a few stocks. I wanted to start with. I guess the the most talked about stock in the Australian market probably in the last 5 years. Well I think we've already made reference to it once <laughs> uh today and that of course is Afterpay. I'm sure it's not news to anybody listening here that Afterpay is being in the process of being taken over by Square. And I know that Afterpay was certainly a company you owned before the before that takeover, is that right? Yep, that's right. So we
1: we sort of um we you know in the fund we started buying it in um, I think it was in sort of late 2018 so you know it's it's certainly an outlier I've never had a uh, and I don't think I ever will in my lifetime have a, a, a share price that's done what it's done I mean I think it's risen over 2,000 percent during that that period um, it's been an extraordinary ride it's it, it you know it's also had some um as I was saying, alluding to earlier, it's given you plenty of reason along the way to, to question your conviction in it. But um, what about that drawdown
0: last year? <laughs> wow.
1: that would—that's still ingrained into my memory. <laughs> you know, I think sub ten dollars at one stage, and you know there were some beating drums out there. But we, yeah, it it the, the square takeover, and I, I don't know if I've if you're still finishing the question, Patrick, but um, <laughs> it,
0: it it looks outstanding. Do you want to keep owning that stock post merger is that outstanding for after pay shareholders is it after outstanding for square shareholders or both
1: I think it's going to be both um we you know the plan is to hold uh the combined company probably shows how boring my life is! But I, I'm I'm very <laughs> excited about having a business of Square's quality listed on the ASX. You know, I I really think it's um it's going to bring something new to our market, um, and hopefully it stays on our market because we have seen a couple of these um ones that have fairly quickly disappeared. But look, I you know I I, I think I, I listened to Jack Dorsey on the um, recent earnings call discussing you know what he felt were the the benefits of the Afterpay merger. It was it's interesting, you know when Afterpay has been so frequently talked about in Australia. A, a lot of the US analysts hadn't even heard of it when they were initially um, when they initially raised the uh, the acquisition announcement. Um, and there was a lot of questions around it from analysts over there. But from what and, and we are still doing work on on, on Square because it's not something we've looked at too closely in the past. But you know, I've, I think from an outsider looking in, Square appears to be a, a a peer-to-peer business, which has now got sixty to seventy million Americans using the Cash App, um, we know that they've got you know that that the hardware terminals as well that we're seeing cropping up in Australia and and certainly over in America. But it's really that Cash App where they they're effectively becoming a bank for millennials. And you know what they have cottoned onto is providing a tech a tech platform where you know you can get your salary paid into it. You can park some of that money in Bitcoin or in the Nasdaq or in the S and P 500 if you want to. You can transfer money really easily uh, to your friends or to others if you need to. You can do all this really cool stuff around savings goals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Square actually is a, a, a U.S. registered bank, and it's it's one of the big disruptive forces that is coming to the banking industry. And we we know that you know afterpay already was going down this channel themselves before this merger was announced. They um, were creating um, Afterpay money and, you know, it sounded like they were looking at, you know, the Square Cash app, I think, will some way or another sort of merge in with that and Afterpay money might disappear in name at some stage. But it's not inconceivable that, you know, in in a year or two even, that you will be able to get a home loan through Square or, or Slash Afterpay. And you will completely bypass what the banks are able to offer you. And, you know, I just think it's a real warning when looking at some of the blue chip businesses in this country, you know, we've heard the term disruption thrown around, you know, for the last five to 10 years ago. So, but I think it, we are really hitting a, a, a tipping point. And, and, you know, the banks are still, you know, 20 odd percent of the Australian share market and um, it's not going to be something that's going to happen overnight but I, I, I do think the writing is on the wall that you've got some incredibly good operators who are willing to invest very aggressively in these businesses and do things completely differently that are going to attract a lot of customers and potentially you know eat the bank's lunch so you know CBA I think appears to be really on to it and they're going down a similar path and they can see what is coming but you know, I, I, I do worry about, well, yeah, I, you know, you do worry that there are others out there that really could be vulnerable
0: to it over the next decade. Is that Klarna that you're referring to there with C, CBA?
1: Yeah, I think that, but also CBA is very aggressively investing in their tech, into their tech deck and, you know, I think Matt Common, you know, last week or this week, uh, uh, announcing that CBA customers are going to be able to put money into Bitcoin, uh, you know, through the app. This is the path you've got to go down. You know, it, you've you've got to stay relevant, and if you don't, then people will take their business elsewhere. And in the past, there hasn't been anywhere else to take your business. There, you know, there really hasn't been a competitor that can do what the banks can do, but it, maybe in a more consumer-friendly way, and. You know, we're seeing multiple businesses which are really just looking at these small, very profitable parts of banks' businesses where they're earning, you know, probably oversized margins and sort of thinking of ways that they can attack them. And that might be in um, forex conversion. You know, I look at a business like Tyro, which provides, you know, what, Probably the second best point of sale hardware solutions to business customers, and you can now actually have a Tyro bank account. You can borrow money through Tyro, and all the merchants you speak to really rave about how easy and and how good the service is. So, I think it's just a reflection of what is coming. Sorry, I'm getting off the topic here with the um with the afterpay call. But at this stage, we are planning on sticking with the um with the combined entity. And, you know, I, I think there's still going to be a lot of growth to, growth to come. Bearing in mind, Square really operates in, I think it's three countries. I think Australia is actually like their second co- biggest
0: market in to date globally. So, really? You know, I did a, not know yeah, that. Yeah, I'm pretty
1: sure. Yeah. So
0: I, I, I assumed a, that they were as big everywhere as they are here and in, in, in the US.
1: <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that's right. So I think outside of America, we're their next biggest market, <laughs> but I'm sure we won't be for long.
0: <laughs> no, no, no it seems as though i mean fintech has just been a a buzzword for so many years it, it feels like the industry is finally kind of maturing to a place where it can it can actually have an impact um afterpay of course have well not afterpay themselves but they have invested in in another firm called touch ventures which listed recently i'd be curious to get your view on that i'm not sure if you own it or not did you participate in the IPO? Did you have a look at it? Did you like what you see?
1: Yep. So, it it was a fairly small raising. We did get it. We did actually bid for a small an allocation in it, and you know got some early scale back, but we we did retain some shares in it, and uh, um, it did what you so often do see I think it nearly doubled the first day that it started trading and it's actually now trading under the IPO price Um, so I think some of the hot money sort of chasing the afterpay story and then sort of realizing this is going to be a long slow burn but that yeah there's definitely some characteristics there Patrick that I think look attractive Um, so the best way to think about touch ventures is it's like a um, a listed venture capital company I think is the best way to think about it and um, it came to the market with, I think it was five investments that have been made over the last few years, four of which have been originated by Afterpay and effectively leading into into this merger with Square, what they've decided to do is spin off those investments um, as a as, as a standalone investment vehicle, they've announced that they'll. I think they're hoping to get to about ten within the um, within the company. They announced uh, they'd done a small raising with Till, um, another fintech digital payment business. Um, so, you know what what's attracted us to it is that from a afterpay perspective, you know they are watching. They would have so much data coming through that platform now, where they can see. On a day-to-day basis, um, trends that are emerging, and the same thing happening—it would be happening with the merchants that they're, that they're talking to and they're seeing—and they would know where there's some pain points. I think in in the in the experience, and they'd be and what they've been doing is out there looking to find um, some startups or you know not even startups but companies that are going along that journey that can solve those pain points and potentially afterpay. Can help hyperscale the growth that they're experiencing, so you know you've got. I think what it would have to be two of the the best operators with, that we have seen in this country in in this part of the um, of the industry, who are effectively helping nurse these businesses into more mature states, and then from. A founder point of view, we we know that the venture capital market is red hot. It's not just here; it's all around the world. There's a lot of money that's being given to venture capital fund managers, and and the biggest challenge we hear is that you know it's finding the right businesses to invest that money. And there's there's not as many future afterpays as you <laughs> as obviously as you think. And I I just think for a founder when they're choosing who you know they want to bring on to their register. You couldn't think of anyone much better. You're going to get the expertise. You're going to be brought into an ecosystem which is experienced hyperscale growth itself, and you're going to come onto the radar of a lot of other investors, which will probably mean when you do subsequent funding rounds, it's going to be on more attractive multiples, and it will help accelerate the speed of the growth of the business. So, you know, it's from an outsider looking in, it looks like a win-win to me, and. You know, th- th- these things do take time. You know, there's a couple of other examples like Bailador, you know, I think are, are fairly similar, I would say. And Thorny Technologies is probably another one that can, you know, invest in unlisted and with a plan to bringing them through to an IPO. The thing to just bear in mind is that, you know, you're really only going to see value come through the, the listed portfolio as subsequent funding rounds occur and existing investments are revalued to up-to-date market valuations and, and the time between those funding rounds can be several years in in some cases. So um, it's really, I think, maybe a sort of bottom draw sort of one and, you know, one you wouldn't probably want to have a, a huge allocation to, but I just think it makes a lot of sense. And, um, and, and you know, I think f- four of these investments were done some time ago by Afterpay. So, you know i'm 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 sure that they're showing some merit. And there's some great people on the board and involved in in touch so who will be bringing these um bringing these companies along
0: one of the companies that kind of stood out as I was looking over some of your holdings was link administration services, as I think they're called now. Um, yep the company's had a bit of a challenged history since listing, mm-hmm. and you've never really struck me as a as a turnaround investor. Is that what you see it as or Am I looking at this the wrong way?
1: No, I think Link has been. You know that there, there, there's several companies that we own at the moment that are going through various issues, and um, I think that's just the reality of you know when you've got twenty odd stocks in your portfolio. And Link is is up the top of the list. Um, that what it initially attracted us to Link, and I think we've probably been in there for about three years or so now, was the Pexa business that they were building out. So you know what you had was a, um, a mature low growth um, uh, company which you know from to be honest probably wouldn't have attracted but there wouldn't have been much to attract us um, onto the register but they were, they were they kept showing the numbers of this PEXA division that they were a shareholder of and wow you know it just it, PEXA has been an extraordinary success story I mean it was put together by Macquarie probably one of the you know, Macquarie's one of the biggest holdings in, in, in this portfolio and it's just Macquarie at its best, I'd, I'd say, you know, where they brought the various state governments together. They said, look, let's digitize the, the land titles, offices that you all own, and in return, we'll give you equity in the vehicle, the banks, or they brought onto the register as well, and you know to speed up the adoption of um, digital property settlements, you really needed the banks on board, and Link were there as you know they they provide a lot of custodial services so they can do the back end sort of administration sort of stuff. And that consortium has changed over the years. Government sold out, um, all but CBA sold out over over that time, and. PEXA was just becoming bigger and bigger in size. And although there's sort of attributes of the other, the remaining link business, which I think looks very cheap, but you know it's probably not what we'd normally go for, it was being dwarfed by the success of PEXA. And at the time was the only way to get exposure to PEXA. Where it hasn't played out is that, you know, sort of um, for where we're up to now is that PEXA has been IPO'd and... Link is the largest remaining shareholder in PEXA. I think uh, Link's market cap, you could ascribe about two thirds of its market cap to its PEXA holding. And, you know, the frustrating part has been that the core business has really held the, the unbelievable growth of PEXA back. And, you know, there's, there's probably an, a, another conversation for, you know, what we think's gone on there. I, I would say... It just doesn't feel like there's been a clear strategy to me from Link where, you know, they were talking about selling down PEXA a year or so ago to start returning cash to shareholders. Then they were talking about potentially passing through the PEXA shares to shareholders. And then we got to the IPO and they were actually talking about investing further into PEXA. So, you know, I think there's a real sort of muddled message through that. And, you know, I know they're talking up the existing... You know, you know, the other part of the link business is offering, you know, five-year longer-term aspirational strong growth rates, but I just think the market's not buying it. And, you know, of course, we've seen a takeover bid for them uh, late last week. And, you know, I think that says there's value there, but it's, it's been a frustrating one, Patrick.
0: What do you think of PEXA as a separate business now? Are you considering buying shares in PEXA? Or has that growth story largely played out? The The reason I ask is because if I'm not mistaken, I think PEXA already processed something like 97% of the property settlements in Australia. It's a stat I remember reading recently and it just kind of stuck in my head. Is yeah. there still upside left in, in PEXA?
1: I, look, I, I think there is still upside left in PEXA. There is a lot of adjacencies that that PEXA could um, bring onto their platform uh, which make a lot of sense are an incredibly high margin. You've also got. Uh, we've gone through a period where uh, property settlements have been very low versus historical levels because of a you know a, a roaring housing market because of COVID, where auctions and um, uh, you know in house inspections have been have been disallowed. So that the, the actual volumes of properties transacting over the last couple of years have been abnormally low, which has affected the PEXA business. The question mark with PEXA in, in turn um, from Link is, you know, they are now um, eyeing off the UK and looking at trying to do a, a similar feat in the UK that they've done in Australia. And I think the market is, you know, my sort of view is the market's really in two minds about that where I think, you know, they had a really clear run at it in Australia. There's going to be more competition from day dot in the UK. They're going to have to sink a fair bit of capital up front to try and get this business up to a, a scale that it will need to be to be profitable in the UK. And with that comes risk of potentially watering down a very high quality business in Australia. That You know, there's often an argument that, you know, I know companies – Growth is good. And, you know, I think you've got the impression that I'm a, you know, I'm a guy that loves to see growing businesses, but you you can be guilty of overcomplicating it. And if, you know, if I look at one of another of our holdings in, in, in the portfolio, you look at REA, it has got one of the most extraordinary Australian businesses that I think you would almost find anywhere in the world in terms of a digital marketplace. And they have made, a number of um, attempts at going into sort of inverted commas, less mature, um, you know, lower internet penetration where things were being done the way they were 15, 20 years ago in Australia. And they're really, you know, over the time that, that you wouldn't say um, it's been a great move for them. They would have been better off just sticking to what they're doing in Australia and just letting that business continue to power ahead. You know, Realtors, an interesting business in, in in the US, which they own a chunk of, particularly with what's going on with Zillow at the moment, who are closing down, the, you know, this house purchasing arm, which is, you know, pretty interesting. And we did meet with them in the US a couple of years ago. And, you know, I think there is a, a prospect that that business could do really well over there, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a very long time for Americans to change the way that they purchase properties. So, look, again, long answer to the question, but PEXAS it could be a great business as it is. the The board ultimately will need to make the decision as whether they they go holus bolus at the UK, and then you make a decision as to whether you think that's too risky a move or not. In terms of link, you know what I would say, and I've you know I've, I've had these thoughts rattling around in my mind is you were so much better to invest in REA than you were in News Corp, and and there's been countless other examples where. If you really like a business within a business, and you can access that business, despite the remaining business looking cheap, and you know that's been <laughs> that's News Corp has been a constant theme in that respect, go for the business that you really like. Uh, you're probably going to do a lot better, and it's probably a you know a lesson that we could have got onto a bit earlier. But I am hoping that you know I I, I think this transaction that's been announced late last week. Makes sense. I think you know shareholders in Link are going to be passed through Pexa shares, which we we would love, and then take a cash at what looks like a pretty reasonable premium to me for the um the part of the business that's really been struggling.
0: Well, I didn't want to ask you a generic, boring question like "What's the next afterpay?" I think uh, I think we probably all heard that question too many times. Um, I, thought, and I
1: don't have the answer, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: and either do I. Or else, I, I, I'd probably uh, I'd probably be sitting on that one myself. Um yep. I, I was kind of thinking about like what what that what the question is really getting at, which is you know what's going to be a stock that everybody's going to be talking about and that is going to produce high returns. Obviously, a good you know reasonable question to ask. I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that that would be pretty closely related with companies that. Grow at a very high rate. So, given that, when you're looking at you know out over the next five years at your portfolio, what's the company that you see uh, that you expect to to produce the highest levels of growth?
1: Look, I'd, I'd come back again to just when you say highest levels of growth. I'd, I I think if I was looking, if I was singling out two businesses in the smaller end, um, that I think will have the strongest levels of profit growth over the next five years, but the market is pricing a lot of that in today. Um, they would be Ordinate, I, I think, is a business that is really transforming the industry that it's operating in, and Betmakers would be an, an, another business which um, you know, is really, well, hopefully, going to really benefit from The opening of the US sports betting market, which is I think, you know, just going to be an enormous investing event over the next two decades. However, you know, I, I would at the same time say that the market is ascribing very healthy valuations for what you know future levels of growth. And hopefully both of those businesses over that time grow into those valuations and can continue to deliver good returns for shareholders, I think if I was looking at one in the portfolio, which I would have the highest conviction in, it would be ResMed, which I know is a much more mature business than those other two. But, you know, I I, I just continue to look at where they're headed. And, you know, that there's 1.6 billion people globally who still have undiagnosed sleep apnea or chronic obstru- obstruction pulmonary disease or COPD, it's called. 1.6 billion, and we know now the the, the the clinical trials and all of the all of the data that is looked at with people who suffer from these conditions, categorically shows that it causes some pretty nasty things for your body over time. It will dramatically shorten your life. It will put more pressure on your heart. It will probably mean that you're more likely to be obese, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and all the knock-on effects of that. So, you know, doctors are becoming a lot more proactive at diagnosing these conditions, which I think had a bit more of a stigma 10 years ago and, and treating them. And ResMed is the largest player in this market. It has had what I think is a game-changing experience in the last year where their second largest player, a, a company called Respironics, which is owned by Philips, has had a global uh, product recall of their of their main device, which has just opened up this runway for ResMed, which I think the market is still, you know, you know, when you're talking about market behavior, I think markets can overreact in the short term to bad news and it can they can underreact to good news. And it takes time for the market to see on the upside where that's coming through. But, you know, at the same time as Respironics um, having to pull their device, ResMed is launching their new AirSense 11 and, the, you know, the, the lifespan of these um, devices is much longer than, say, an iPhone. You don't get every year a new device. It's every, like, five or six years. And the new device looks completely different to the old device. And it, it's always a period where you will see an acceleration of sales because the existing users of your devices will look at it and go, I'll, I'll definitely I'll get the new one. The doctors recommend it to them. The, the, the technology around it is way superior. But what's happening now is you've also got all of these Philips patients who are being forced across. And ResMed have been very smart in building out a digital ecosystem around the, the devices and masks that they sell, where once you become a ResMed customer, it, it will become very hard for you to leave, to say, to go back to Respironics if, when they do come back to the market. So, it creates, you know, when we we're talking about that the quality of revenue or the quality of earnings, to me, this is a great example of it where once you become a ResMed patient, it, it's highly unlikely that you will leave and you will probably keep paying this recurring fee of income, not just for the devices, but also to monitor your sleep, to Doctors can now access the data through the cloud so that they can actually monitor their patients. And if there's a problem that they can pull them in, it takes strain off the healthcare system, particularly in the United States. And, you know, it's just got a lot of the other things we look for. Mick Farrell, who's the CEO, has been there for 20 years and, you know, has delivered in spades for his shareholders and his patients and his stakeholders, as he would say. The balance sheet is pristine you know, we think the earnings per share should at least double over the next five years. And, you know, it's trading on an EV to EBITDA, I think of around eight to eight and a half times at the moment, which isn't overly stretched. I would, you know, I, w- I would say, um, or if you're looking at a PE, it's probably sort of in the mid 30s to, to high 30s. So, you know, reflecting that very strong balance sheet that ResMed has. So, you know that if I was singling out one in the portfolio, which I really think, you know, not only could grow strongly over the next five years, but I think grow reliably, and and that's something that really appeals to me. Is, um, you know, it's going to bed and not losing a night's sleep over growth. <laughs> that, that that's a nice feeling, and um, and having businesses like that along with other businesses where it's going to be a more volatile journey, but you you, you hope they can work their way to become future resmeds.
0: Now, we're running a little bit over time at the moment, um, but if you're happy to hang around for a little bit longer, as I'm sure you're aware, I have three favorite questions <laughs> uh, that I always like to ask each one of my guests. What's a book that has been particularly influential on your investment philosophy and what did you like about it?
1: Um, yeah, look, I, I know one up on Wall Street gets a lot of mentions, so I'm, I'm going to. I, I, this next one probably does as well. You've got to read One Up on Wall Street, but beating the street was probably one that really it was. I think when when I started, I started um, back at a, a stockbroking firm called D and D Tolhurst, and I was I think I was 21, out of fresh out of uni, and Jeremy Hook, who I still sit next to now and and work with, um, he actually said, "Mate, go away and read this," and try and ignore the 20 cent mining um, IPOs that we're currently in the process of doing and learn how to invest well. <laughs> and it was probably one of the, you know, um, Jez puts, you know, a wise head on my shoulders f- very frequently, but it was definitely one of the better things that he helped me out with. It's, you know, it's a, a it's a great story. It's, it's easy to read. It's got so many good lessons in there that really strike a chord with me. And in terms of what I like, you know, have a process, at, you know, Really, there was a strong process-driven argument about how to invest, and I, I try and do that myself. Being inquisitive, you know, That and I, I think that's one of the main prefaces of the book is talk to people, you know, go and look around, open your eyes. There's a great quote in there, if you love the store, you'll probably love the stock. And, you know, I think if I look at two of the best ideas that we've come across in the last decade, one was Julux, just because... Every time a, a painter came over and did work, you'd you know, have a chat to him. Why are you recommending Dulux? They'd say, it's the only paint company that will give us a five-year guarantee in this country. No one else does it. So if you want a five-year guarantee from us, it's got to be Dulux. That that got me onto it. Reese. You know, it's um when every plumber you speak to says, don't use anything else, use Reese. And look how quickly I can go and I know it's in stock and I don't have to sit out the front or, you know, for two hours waiting for a part or something like that. It makes their life easier and the quality of the, the products, they know that they're not going to have to come back and fix them and that's that's going to make their job easier. So be inquisitive and be patient, you know. I'll never have another afterpay. We, we've had some really good five to ten baggers, but they've occurred over much longer time frames and... But stick with the businesses, and you know a, a, a quite here. Also, st- I'll, I'll never forget: don't pull out the flowers to water the weeds. Stick with your best businesses, and don't get itchy fingers and try and think. Oh, that one looks cheap. You know, we'll, we'll sell a bit of that. And we'll go into that. It, it, it's rarely a good idea.
0: I think you're actually the first person who's mentioned beat the street on the show. Uh, okay. As- you, oh, as you, you rightly point out, we do we do get uh, one up on Wall Street as a fairly uh, regular recurring recommendation. But I think that's actually the first time it's been mentioned. So same author and- Peter Lynch. Yep. Yeah. Uh, did he write it with somebody else or maybe it was the other one he wrote with somebody else? No, I think he wrote it by himself.
1: It was, called, it was sort of, he wrote it at a funny time in his life. I think from, like, I haven't read it for a while now, but it was, he was packing up the Fidelity Magellan Fund. He basically decided that, you know, he never saw his kids, he'd never exercised, he or he lived and breathed the markets and um, there was little else going on in his life. And I think he was in his mid-40s or something, which, you know, probably a similar time to me now I think about it, maybe <laughs> that's why I've mentioned it. But yeah, I think, you know, it was looking back at the 13 years that he was managing that fund and, you know, the things that he employed that, that got the returns that it earned.
0: Could you tell us about your biggest gain or loss? What were the most valuable lessons that you took from the experience?
1: I mean, after pay would be the biggest gain, but we've spoken about that. I, I, I think CSL would probably, you know, I know it's a um, a much more mature stock, but it would have to, it would easily have to be one of the biggest gains. I mean, I. I I'm probably going back now to managing um, private client money, which has been a much longer journey for us than the fund. Um, you know, certainly in the fund, um, it's it's been after pay. But, you know, we, we've, we've owned CSL, it would easily be for 15 years now. And um, I, I couldn't, to be honest, Patrick, I couldn't actually tell you what it was trading at back then. And it's obviously done a, a share split. I think it did a three for one at some stage. There has only been one time, Um, in my career that I've had to worry about CSL. And of course, that was when September 11 happened. And, you know, as with COVID, just the bizarre knock-on effects that you can get from these left-of-field events where um, Americans went out, uh, donated blood in droves because of um, the tragic loss of life and people in hospital. And it completely distorted the blood market for several years after it. Um, You know, who would have predicted it, even if you knew what was going to happen, I don't think you would have taken that, got to that next point, just as we've seen with lockdowns and things like that in COVID. Um, Aside from that, I I just think that the management, that the market that they continue to, the market is growing, they continue to grow into the market, they invest very aggressively back into their business at incredibly high rates of uh, return on invested capital, and uh, you know, I am sure it is going to be a, a fantastic performer
0: for the next decade. Assuming you were talking about two thousand six, there. Just because you said you weren't sure of the price, I had a bit of a look. Looks like it was trading somewhere between around fifteen and twenty dollars in that year. So I reckon, uh, I reckon that's not bad at at what is it three hundred and fifteen dollars or so today.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I've got a. i have got I actually had a um, a client who came to us who inherited some shares from her mother. And when I looked at it, it's like, there's got to be a mistake with this cost base. And it was $5,000 had gone into CSL, you know, I think around the float or shortly after it. And it was worth well over a million dollars. You know, it's just <laughs> incredible. Um, uh, the value, you know, the, the wealth creation that has that provided um, has been amazing.
0: Well, I have one last question for you but I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. I'm not actually suggesting to anybody that they go out there and put all of their money in a single share and forget about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if markets were going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be?
1: Okay, so... That we've singled it. There's been a couple of ResMed, CSL, you know, great businesses. Oh, to, just to do something a bit more interesting, and and I I still would probably say this would be my one company. It would be REA, which I I know I discussed very briefly earlier. But not all businesses are created equal, and and this this business, Patrick, has got a, a complete stranglehold over the property advertising market in this country, and you know there is a number two player the domain but um REA I think at its latest call they advised that now around 7 million people exclusively are looking on REA a month and i think it's now over three times the um the, the visits versus the co- closest competitor and you know the financial attributes that this company has got are rare you know like the the return on equity the ebitda margins which are frequently you know in the high 50%s you, you just don't see businesses like this very often, and it's one—it's another one of those companies which, for as long as I followed it, and we, I think we've been in there since about fifteen dollars or sixteen dollars. It has always been seen as expensive. The analysts, you know, there's been very few buy recommendations that I've seen along that journey. It's always been recognized as quality, but too expensive, and it, it comes back to what I was talking about earlier—taking a long-term view. Because if you take a long-term view, you can buy more expensive quality businesses and you will be rewarded over time but you know I, I think also just if i was picking this out over the next over the over the next 5 years i'd say you know that the catalysts i can see are that we've had a as i was saying earlier an abnormally low period of property settlements and and properties going on the market or listings and that's been because of covid and I think you know. My personal view is the market's the housing market is hitting a bit of a tipping point. We're either close to a peak, or you know, maybe we're at it at the moment. And as we come down the other side, what you will see is volumes go up, and, and that'll be because people will start to feel like they've missed it. You know, get let's get the house on the market while things are still pretty good. It will also be a time when people can sell their place and be a bit more confident that they can step aside and wait for something to buy, which REA frequently talks about. You know, they sort of say a red-hot housing market is not good for us because people sit on their hands. They, they're they worried that they won't be able to find something else to buy and prices will steep, keep going up. So, I you know, I, I think the listing volume side of it is going to be really advantageous for them over the next five years. And, you know, the market as a whole will continue to grow because we have a, an increasing amount of housing stock in this country. I think the market share over domain will continue to grow and the value creation that they're providing for the the agents and, and for the vendors will continue to be reflected in higher and higher prices that they'll they'll charge. So that's a pretty Awesome combination when you've got those things humming along. Yet they've got an interest in an in Indian um, platform, which does look quite good. And there's realtor in the US, so that, you know these one of those could be meaningful over the next five years. And then they've the last thing I'll just call out is the New South Wales government's got this pretty interesting idea of changing stamp duty and how it's charged on properties, which potentially could make properties transact much more frequently that would be like gold for the REA business. So it's going to take some time, but it's, it's, it's on
0: the horizon. Great. Well, that's the end of the show. Ben, thanks for chatting to us today. It was really fun to hear your thoughts, and it's great to finally chat with you.
1: Thanks for having me, Patrick. i really enjoyed it.
0: Well, that's the end of the show. If you made it this far, I hope that means you enjoyed it. So please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or if you're a LiveWire reader, give this wire a like. Thanks for tuning in.